Well, how many of you likes to get mail? Okay, raise your hands. I know some of you are saying it depends on who it's from, right? But uh, we have a lot of uh, types of messaging in our world today, right? Uh, so uh, one type of messaging, probably the most recent, is uh, texting. And uh, texting is uh, useful for uh, short messages, unless you're my beautiful wife, uh, then it's for tomes and, you know, large messages. Uh, but it's for short messages and quick messages, and you can send someone uh, uh, some important message and get a response back, and that's all good. You know, I, I, just aside, I, I have a conviction that one day technology is going to bring us to a place where you can literally pick up uh, some kind of an instrument and punch in some numbers and talk to another human being on the other side. Okay, so that's just a conviction I have that someday that'll be invented, you know, so, so we'll see how that works out. But then we have email, right? So all of us use email, and uh, uh, I was gone for a week, a couple of weeks ago, and when I came back, I had 407 emails on my church computer. Now, some of them, and I love this feature of computers, uh, you have that little delete button. Isn't that exciting? You know, a little arrow goes up with a little red X, and it's just awesome, and just bump, bump, bump. But some of those emails, those 407 emails, were from you. And when there's one from you, uh, I, I, I think, okay, this is good, I think, I hope, you know, and open it up, and it's a prayer request or a need or an encouraging word, or it's some message from you, and that really matters to me. Those kind of messages really matter. Now again, we all love the feature of delete, and sometimes we do that, but so that's another way. But then there's the old-fashioned way of us sending a message, right? Uh, have any of you ever seen these kind of things before? Some of you young people, you, you guys know what these are? Okay, yeah. These are called letters. And uh, these are called cards, and I know you don't know what they are. But uh, on them have, now all of these have been sent to me, to the church, in the last couple of years. Okay, so there's a lot of them in here. And I think half of them are Di from Diane and Nia. No, not really. Uh, but uh, she's a wonderful uh, card writer. But each one of these has, uh, somebody took the time to buy a card or a piece of paper, write on it, a 48-cent stamp. That's expensive, right? And write that and mail it to someone. And these, when I see these, as much as I like your emails, when I see these, I go, oh, now I really want to see this. I, I really, now unless it's a bill, right, or from the IRS, I really want to see this. And I love that about mail. Now, 2,000 years ago, or to be more precisely, 1,914 years ago, God sent letters to the church. And seven of those letters were intended to go to seven specific churches in Asia Minor. And beyond that, those letters, and this is another feature I like about email, uh, if you have a letter that you want to send to other people, you just push forward and it goes there. These letters that uh, John the Revelator wrote to the seven churches of Asia, we'll talk more about that in a moment, were intended to not only be to those seven churches, but to other churches in Asia Minor. And get this, for other churches for the next 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years until the Lord tarries, those letters were sent to us as well. So, I can say this to you today, you've got mail, right? <laughs> Every single one of you, you've got mail. And it's important mail, it's not just an email, it's important mail, it's a letter written by God to the church, and specifically, that letter is written to you. So, we're going to take a look at that today. Now, the content of this letter is found in the book of Revelation. 
Now, Revelation for many people is uh, scary. Uh, it's the last book in the Bible. Uh, it's a book that is uh, fraught with uh, demons and lions and symbols and lampstands and all kinds of weird kind of scary looking things. So a lot of people have kind of ignored that book, but we're not going to do that today because remember the Revelation is part of the inspired Word of God and it's just as valid for the church today, in some cases more so, just as valid as any of the Gospels or the Epistles or the Old Testament. Now, a lot of people have been scared about uh, Revelation because it's so hard to understand. One of a modern theologian, uh, a Brit by the name of John Stott, writes this about Revelation. Many Christians shy away from the book of Revelation. It seems incomprehensible to them. When they read from its pages, they step into a strange and unfamiliar world of angels and demons, lambs, lions, horses, and dragons. A world in which seals are broken, trumpets are blown, and the contents of seven bowls are poured out on the earth. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. Uh, so, besides John Stott, throughout the, throughout the history of the church, there have been different church fathers who have really questioned whether or not the book of Revelation should be in the sacred canon. For instance, uh, back in the 5th century, uh, a church father by the name of St. Jerome complained that Revelation contained as many riddles as it does words. And then later than that, about 500 years ago, in the 16th century, Martin Luther, one of the church fathers, said that the book of Revelation should be banished from the pages of the New Testament. He was wrong about that, but that's what Martin Luther felt. And another anonymous scholar put it this way, the book of Revelation either finds a man mad or leaves him so. Okay, so that's what some of the ancient fathers have said about Revelation. But here's the good news. This book is just as relevant and alive and vibrant as the day it was written. It is understandable, it is accessible, and it is redeemable. So all of us want to incorporate this into our regular, normal Bible reading. This is not junk mail. This is not to be deleted. This is the inspired word of God. Now, the author, God, used to write this letter. Is he, the person who used to write the letter is the Apostle John. And uh, in the, the Apostle John, let me tell you who he was, one of the original apostles, and he lived to be older than anyone else. So, uh, he was probably about 100 years old when he was banished to the island of Patmos in A.D. 94. Now, he was banished there, and by the way, he was banished there along with other criminals to work in the marble quarries, you know, kind of like Jean Valjean, right? He was there to, he worked in the marble quarry. That's what he did along with other criminals, and he was banished there by Titus Diocletian, Titus Flavius Diocletian, and this guy was a piece of work. Now, you thought Nero was bad starting in AD 62. He persecuted the church. He instituted the circus where they had uh, Christians were persecuted and eaten by lions and stuff like that. Diocletian was even worse. He was wicked. He was an evil man. And he would do everything to crush this, the, the Christian movement. And every time he did something to crush the Christian movement, it exploded even further. Now, after Diocletian came another guy by the name of, uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, anyway, there's another guy that's even worse than Diocletian. Uh, and and th these guys were amazing. These Roman Caesars were so critical and so 
so intent on killing Christianity, but every time they did, the church just exploded in new ways. So it was in that context that John, the revelator, uh, received the word of God. So I want to read for you uh, in John, uh, excuse me, Revelation chapter 1. Uh, turn to your Bibles there. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 1, last book in the Bible. First chapter of the last book, Revelation 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 9 to 12. And here's my opportunity to tell you that uh, if you have your Bible, uh, open it. If you have your instrument with the Bible on it, open that. Uh, it's also in your sermon notes. It's on the screen. And I want to tell each and every one of you to what? Read your Bibles, right? Every day, every week, read your Bibles. It's amazing what God has put there. And include in your reading the book of Revelation. So this is, uh, we're being introduced to John, uh, the Revelator. Uh, he's 100 years old now. Uh, he's working in the, uh, the quarry, and he's about to be confronted with the living God in a way that you can't hardly believe. So listen to this. Revelation 1, 9. I, John am your brother and partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the spirit. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I would add to that list Hope Covenant Church in 2014. So, God says to John, okay, John, I'm going to show you a vision. And in that vision, you're going to see some amazing things. Now, I didn't put this in the sermon notes, but I want to read for you verses uh, 17 uh, through 19 also. So here, get the, get the picture of what happens to John. So he's in the spirit worshiping God and everything's cool. And all of a sudden, there's this trumpet blast behind him, behind him that literally knocks him over. He falls to his knees wondering, where did that come from? And listen to verses 17 to 19. When I saw him, the one that blew the trumpet, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me. Can you imagine Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, lays his right hand on John, on me, and this is what Jesus said. And then the rest of chapters 2, and three, by the way, all of Revelation was written to the seven churches, not just chapters 2 and 3. All of Revelation was written to the seven churches. Therefore, all of Revelation was written to Hope Covenant Church. Therefore, we need to understand all of Revelation. So he said, okay, so Jesus grabs him on the shoulder and he said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. Jesus is speaking. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. Verse 19, write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. So Jesus says to John, okay, listen, Pal, this is for me. I'm going to dictate to you what I want you to write. And this is for the churches. And this is for the future churches. And this is the inspired word of God. And you've got to get this right because I want this message to go to the church. You've got mail. Every one of you, you've got mail. This letter is written for you and the other seven letters. So during the next eight weeks, uh, we are going to look at these seven letters. You say, why eight weeks? Well, on July... 
what is it, Brandon, 13, I forget which Sunday, July 13, um, Pastor David Hillis, a former associate pastor, is coming here to preach, and I'm going down to his church in Tucson, Grace Covenant Church, and preach there. So that's one Sunday we'll pause in our sermon series, otherwise this will take us throughout the summer. So here's, here's some good news. You listen to every one of these sermons, you come to church every Sunday, and when you're done with this series, we're almost done with summer, okay? That's kind of exciting. So that's just a bonus, you know, just kind of an added bonus. So the author of this book is the Holy Spirit. The voice that is used is Jesus. The man who's used to write it is John the Revelator. And all of these things are coming together to bring this message of truth to you and to me. So let's look at it. The first letter is the letter to Ephesus, and it's found in the text in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of God for the people of God. Hear this word. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. That's talking about Jesus. And the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You examine the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life of the paradise of God. Isn't that a beautiful letter? So that letter was written, now remember, in Revelation, everything is rooted in historical context. These were actual churches. The message was actually written to them. It was actually given to them. But there's also a part of, of Revelation that is, uh, the theologians use the word eschatological. In other words, the study of things to come. So not only is it rooted historically, it's also eschatological in that Revelation is pointing to the time when Jesus Christ, will, in his second coming, will return to the earth and set up for a thousand years this reign, and then there will be a final end to all things where Jesus promises to make all things new. So this is pointing eschatologically to the future when Jesus Christ will return. So it's a word for the churches then, and it's a word for the churches now. It's a word for Hope Covenant Church. So in AD 100, Ephesus was one of the main urban centers of the Roman Empire. It was known for a gathering place for false religious cults. Um, in other words, Ephesus, if you wanted to have, start a religion, you go to Ephesus because everybody accepts all religions there. It's kind of like what today the modern Baha'i faith is. If you've heard of the Baha'i faith, they have a temple in Hawaii and I think others throughout the world. But the Baha'i faith is this. Every door you go into in their temple represents a religion. So Christianity here... Uh, you know, Islam here, uh, Buddhism here, and all the different world religions all are represented by a door. And all of those doors 
lead down to a center, and the symbolism is that all roads lead to God, right? Isn't that sweet? Isn't that sweet and kind and cute? You know, you know that, like, I hate that bumper sticker with all the weird, you know, things on it, you know, that everything is okay with God. Nope, God said that's not the case. I don't say it. God says it. It's not the case. There's one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. He is the one true God. So, Anyway, all these religions, that was Ephesus. As everybody, everything was okay. All religions were okay. Everybody was celebrating whatever they believed, and everybody said, no, that's a really interesting view. I think that's kind of a nice way to go. So that was Ephesus in AD 100. In addition to that, Ephesus was known as a very immoral city. Now, they had one temple, the temple to Artemis, you're from more, more familiar, a more familiar phrase is the Temple of Diana, but the Temple of Artemis, and that was a, a place of, of worshiping basically all things sensual, all things sexual, all things that were uh, the lust of the flesh, you might say. And so this Temple of Diana was there, and in addition to that, uh, this temple was a place to uh, provide uh, uh, criminals from all over the world to come and have uh, a, a place to be safe, okay? So that's what was going on in Ephesus. They had a thousand uh, temple prostitutes. They had this sanctuary for criminals from all over the world. They had all of these world religions. And into that context, Paul walks in on his third missionary journey. He had visited earlier on his third missionary journey. And guess what? He stays there for three years. Now, why do you think he stayed? That's the longest he stayed anywhere during his missionary journeys. Three years in one place. Now he'd go and visit others, but his home base was Ephesus for three years. Why? Because Ephesus really mattered. If they didn't get this Christianity thing embedded there, where the world was looking at it and saying, all things are okay, everything's acceptable, all religions are okay, if we didn't get the truth there, we were in trouble in spreading the gospel to throughout the world. So Paul deemed that very necessary. So if you want to understand kind of this part of Revelation and the church at Ephesus, you look at Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 uh, talks about when Paul uh, went there first uh, with Timothy, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, some of the other team that was part of his uh, pastoral preaching team, and he brought those people into town, and immediately he was encountered by this man by the name of Demetrius, and Demetrius, guess what his job was? He was a silversmith, and guess what he did? He created icons and little pendants and jewelry representing different religions. So how rich do you think he was? You know, there's a hundred religions. Everybody has their own symbol. Everybody has their own picture of what their God looks like. Everybody wants to wear them on their wrist and around their neck and across their forehead. And also, this guy was a, a cajillionaire, you know, a silversmith. Paul comes along, starts preaching the gospel, and Acts 19 says that many, many, many people, Jews, Greeks, and, and uh, as, as well as um, uh, pagans, all of them were coming to Christ. And so this guy's, his job, his livelihood was sinking, sinking, sinking. So he caused a great stink, and uh, there was a riot in Ephesus around this religion. But Paul said, uh, but God said to him, you stay there. Paul, I want you to persevere. I don't want you to leave. This really matters. We've got to maintain this ground. This church in Ephesus really matters for the future spread of the gospel throughout the world. So that was in about A.D. 62. Fast forward 30 years, 32 years to be exact, A.D. 94. John is on Patmos. The Holy Spirit says, I want you to write a letter, and the first letter I want you to write to is Ephesus, because this really matters. And then we come to the 
content of the letter. And this is really uh, outstanding. Um, I'm skipping a little bit ahead, uh, Hector, so kind of stay with me back there. So we're going to skip up to uh, this part where uh, God gives the message, uh, the message to uh, the Ephesians. And he said, really, I have, I have three things to say to you uh, in this message. Remember, this is a letter for you. You've got mail. This is a letter to Hope Covenant Church. The first thing he begins with is commendation. He said, you know what? There's some things that you've done really really well. And I want to commend you. And he said, it's this, you know, you guys have faithfully endured. In the context of this raucous, rowdy, immoral city, this city that is filled with temple prostitutes and criminals from all over the world and rampant religions, everybody's religion is okay. Into that context, I'm plopping Paul and Timothy and Aquila and Priscilla and, and, and Apollos and John and some of the other leaders, and I'm telling them, listen, you guys need to establish a church right here. We really need you. And they did that, and for 40 years, they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. In spite of the riots, in spite of the, the whippings that uh, Paul took and the others, they established the church. Forty years later, there were congregations in Ephesus that amounted to 50,000 Christ followers. Can you imagine, in that context, in 40 years, 50,000 Christ followers were in Ephesus. The city was being transformed by the power of God. And so what Paul is saying, or what John is saying uh, uh, in Revelation is, listen, Jesus says to the church, you guys are doing an amazing job. I'm so proud of you. Now you can draw that conclusion to our world today, right? I mean, when you read about the kind of rampant immorality, that kind of sounds like modern America, and modern world where there's this rampant, everybody's religion is okay, rampant immorality all over the place, and in the middle of that is the church of Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus is saying, hang in there. Be faithful. Be strong. Stand up for what you believe. The world's going crazy all around us, but the church of Jesus Christ must stand true and stand tall for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to what his commendation says. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. Isn't that amazing? I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. Now, one thing he says to the church is this. I know all the things you do. Now, for those of us who are Christ followers, that is both a comfort and a conviction. It's a comfort because Jesus says, Dwayne, I know who you are. I know your heart. I know that you love me. And, I, and I'm really proud of you. And I'm, I'm glad that you're a Christ follower and you're raising your family. And, and he's just kind of giving those words of commendation. But for those of us who are Christ followers, that's also a conviction, right? Because we know that God knows us. We know that God knows us. And he sees us. And he sees our hearts and our words and our thoughts and everything else. So, but he was saying to the church there and he would say to us, listen, I know how hard it is in this modern society. I know how hard it was in Ephesus to be a follower of Christ, to maintain your witness, to be a light in a dark place. And I'm so proud of you that you have faithfully endured your hard work and your patient endurance. In spite of the pushback, in spite of the religious climate, in spite of the, uh, the immorality, I am really proud of you for pushing through and standing tall for Jesus Christ. Uh, there was a... Uh, a guy that I went to seminary with back in the 70s, and he was called to be a missionary 
and the Evangelical Covenant Church ordained, or commissioned him as a missionary to Japan. He learned Japanese. He took his wife there. They raised their family over there. But here's what happened. He went to a place in Japan where the gospel was not known. Okay, did you know that there's over a thousand people groups in the world today, most of them in Muslim countries, that have never heard the name of Jesus, ever? And we think we're doing a good job of mission, being missionaries and evangelists. Well, we've got a lot of work to do. Well, this guy felt called by God to go to this place where Jesus Christ, where the name of Jesus had not been heard. And he said, I know it'll be hard, but God has called me to do this. And so he went there. And he ministered faithfully. He learned the language. He loved the people. He started Bible studies. He started doing everything he could for five years, for 10 years, for 15 years, for 20 years, for 27 years, until there was the very first convert. 27 years as a missionary in Japan before one person said yes to Jesus. Other of his people's family and friends, and even the covenant church sometimes said, now are you sure this is where God is calling? I am sure. I know God has called me here. So stand tall. Persevere. Be patient. When you know that you're doing something that God has called you to, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the atmosphere around you, you stand tall. You be true to your word. Maybe you're that voice at your work. No one else is the voice of Christ, but you're a voice of love and compassion to everyone at your work. Maybe you're that voice at your school. Maybe you're that voice at the place that you go and work out. Maybe you're that voice somewhere, but you stand tall. In spite of the, the, the immorality and the godlessness of the world, you stand tall in Jesus Christ. One such man was a man by the name of William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce um, uh, was elected to the British Parliament in 1784, and he served there until 1812. A year after he went to the British Parliament, uh, he was converted to Jesus. Uh, a friend of his witnessed to him, he gave his heart to Christ, and he became this amazing Christ follower. For the next years, every year that he served in the British Parliament, he had one goal that God laid on his heart, and that was to do everything in his power to abolish slavery. Now, he was trying to abolish something that Great Britain's economy was built on, just like it was in the United States. So it's not like this was some little thing, right? Their economy was built on that. You've got to remember the history of this. Starting in the 15th century, okay, ships from Europe would go to Africa, would grab men, boys, women, enslave them, take them to different places and make them slaves. That's how this thing worked. That's what happened 500 years ago. And it's to our everlasting shame that that happened. And it happened under the watch of people who said there were Christ followers, both in Britain and in the United States, okay? So that was a serious problem. So they would take, and he fought and fought. And then in 1807, they had the Abolition Act of 1833, or excuse me, excuse me the Slave Trade Act of 1807. And the Slave Trade Act said, no longer are we going to go to Africa and steal people. We're not going to do that anymore, okay? So that's good. That's only partially. Still, the whole economy was buzzing and rolling on the slave trade in Great Britain and the United States. It took him another 27 years until 1833, until finally the Abolition Act in Great Britain was passed, and he died three months later. He had given his life to that. Now, to our everlasting uh, sadness... It took us, the United States, another 40 years until we abolished slavery. But the fact is, if it weren't for William Wilberforce, only God knows what our world would look, at, look like today. 
When you have something in your gut that says, this is what God wants you to do. When you have something that's unjust that you can't stand. When there is something in you that screams, God says, I want you to do this. You stand tall. You persevere. You do hard work and patient endurance. And God says, I know you. I see you. And I will bless you. And I will give you the strength that you need. Christ today commands his church or commends his church, you and I, to be faithfully faithful in our perseverance. But then he follows that commendation with a complaint. And listen to the complaint in verse 4. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. The NIV translate that translates that, you have lost your first love. He said, I'm so thankful that you guys are standing tall. I'm so thankful that you're standing against the culture, that you're saying no to all these other gods and you're saying no to immorality and all that, and that you're saying yes to the gospel and you're telling people about Jesus. I'm so glad for that. I'm really, really glad for that. But Jesus said, there's one thing about you, church at Ephesus. There's one thing about you, a church at Hope Covenant Church. There's one thing about you, church of Jesus Christ in our modern world you've lost your first love. You've forgotten what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, there's a woman in our church, in fact, she's in here somewhere, um, and I'm going to use her name uh, because uh, I know she would be happy with what I'm going to say about her. Her name's Janelle, Janelle Ollerton. Uh, Janelle uh, came to our church just several, oh, maybe a couple months ago, and uh, she found Christ, and then several weeks ago she was baptized this morning, she stood up here as one to be a member. And when you see the love of Jesus in her face and in her life, you are not only inspired, but you're convicted. Because you say to yourself, you know what? <laughs> There's a time that that's exactly the way I felt. There was a time when Jesus shone through me like, like you just couldn't believe it. Janelle told me that when she came out of the water, when she was baptized, that something miraculous happened to her. I can't explain that biblically. I don't know what was, you know, but some, the Spirit of God touched her in a way that there's this brightness and this joy and this beauty in her face. That's someone who has first loved Jesus. What happens to us? Why do we fall away? Why do we slip away? Do we turn our affections and our attentions to other things? What happens to us? This complaint to each and every one of us, as it was to the Ephesian church. You have, you have lost your first love. I had a friend of mine, I'll call him Jim, that's not his name, but I'll call him Jim. And um, he found Christ when he was in college and uh, through reading uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Uh, this guy was brilliant, um, one of my friends, and uh, he was, I came to know him when I was serving a church in another city, and he became the chairman of our church in fact, and a wonderful Christ follower and loved God. And uh, he used to write all of our material for our small groups. He would do all of the exegesis. He would write down all the questions in the commentary for Genesis and whatever book of the Bible our small groups were studying. And he was just a brilliant guy, loved the Lord. It was amazing how much he loved God. He was one of those people that helped me through a very difficult time. Well, as uh, when Sherrod and I moved on, we moved to Minnesota and our lives kind of drew apart. We found out that Unfortunately, he and his wife got a divorce. And then his daughter got a divorce. And it's like his life was just kind of falling apart uh, right around him. And, 
And, and, and he said at the time when I talked to him, he said, I just felt like I was slipping away from Jesus, just kind of slowly moving away. If you were to talk to him today, he would probably say something like this. I'm not even sure if I believe in God. I'm not closing the whole issue, but I'm not even sure. And you have to ask the question, what happened? What causes someone who is a Christ follower to slowly, slowly just slip away little by little, little by little? Forty years from Paul establishing the church in Ephesus, the church, 50,000 strong, strong message, standing up against everybody else, the message was, why have you lost your first love? Now, some of us can understand some of the reasons why we lose our first love. For some of us, it's because love is morphed into law. You know, we start out with this beautiful love relationship with Jesus, and then someone tells us that we're supposed to obey all these rules and regulations, and we start checking them off, and we start, instead of loving Jesus, we start trying to do the right things. And instead of believing, we start trying to behave, and everything gets all mixed up, and we become legalists, and it's all ugly. And others of us just simply harbor secret sins. And when we harbor secret sins, there's always this sense that slowly we move away from God, we move away from the church, we move away from our family because we are so intent on keeping this secret, this thing, this thing, whether it's pornography or an affair or something else in our life, this thing we're holding on to and we're saying, I just can't let it go. This matters to me more than anything else. Some people begin loving created things rather than the Creator. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. Begin loving created things rather than the Creator. That's what we call materialism in our world, and we're very, very good at it. Other people find themselves on the slippery slope of morality. They'll say something like, well, I'm already damaged goods, or I've already done it once, or I already did, and the slippery slope of immorality. And then some people just find themselves that that extraordinary act of Christ's love in their life has over time become ordinary. Talk to Janelle if you want to know what extraordinary looks like in a young believer's life. But somehow over time, life beats us up, situations, we become more materialistic than we should, we start loving things we shouldn't love, and over time, we simply find that our faith is ordinary. Here's my question for you. Have you lost your first love? Jesus commended the church, and he would commend us and say, you know what? You guys are amazing. I saw what you did on Easter. I did. Jesus would say, he said, I was so proud. I was so thankful that a thousand people got to hear the gospel, many of them that never go to church. And he would say, when you do a Be the Church, you go into the city of Chandler and you help people that are poor and underserved and underserviced and underprivileged, and you go and do the, you're doing that for me. I'm so proud of you for the way that you're serving. I am, but... But there's one thing, one thing I want you to check in your spirit, and it's this. Have you lost your first love? That passion and joy, that intensity you had when you were first a believer, that quickness to go to prayer, that joy that you had in going to the Word of God, even though you didn't fully understand it, have you lost your first love? And then Jesus finishes this text with a correction. And this is his correction in verse 5. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Jesus says, I have a way of 
realigning you, repositioning you. I have a way of helping you to regain your true north. And he uses three words to do it. He said, I want you to remember, I want you to repent, and I want you to resume. That's his word to how we can get back our true north. Remember. He said, remember how far you have fallen. I remember the times when I was first in love with Sherry, now 40-some years ago. I should know this number, 43 years ago. 44 years? Ouch. Yeah, 44 years ago. Not ouch for her, ouch for me. But 44 years, I remember those feelings I had walking on the campus of San Diego State University when I was a senior engineering student, and all I could think about instead of quantum physics was Sherry Cross or Sherry Wilson. That's all I could think about. I remember the extraordinary things I did to win her affection and her love, things that I've forgotten how to do. Sorry, honey. I remember those things. And I also remember when I was age 16 and I first gave my heart to Jesus. And I remember how I told my friends at school. Some of them laughed at me. They thought I was an idiot. Other than said, man, that, that sounds interesting. I'd like to hear more about that. I remember my best friend, Leroy, I took him to church with me and he gave his heart to Christ. And I remember how passionate I was about reading the Bible and praying and telling others about Jesus. I remembered, I remembered, I remembered. The words of Jeannie Hussey's great hymn, which was a prayer, are these words. Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. Remember, remember, remember your first love when you first knew Jesus. And then he says, repent. You know what repent is. You know it. You've seen it a million times. Repent is this. Walking towards yourself and your self-preservation and your self-engrandizement and all the things that you want to do. And repentance is turning around and walking back towards God. So walking away from yourself, walking away from the things that you feel will fill you up and make you happy, walking away from that which you have come to believe will satisfy you that never will, and walking back towards God. Repent. For some of you, that means turning back to your wife and to your children. Some of you means turning back to your church, but for all of us, it means turning back to Jesus. He's waiting. Like the father on the steps of the prodigal son was coming back, he is waiting. And we need to take that step towards him. And then finally, we need to simply resume to do the works you did at first. Resume. Begin doing those works that you did when you first loved your wife. Begin doing those works that you did when you first loved Jesus. Resume those things. That love for the Word of God, that prayer, that passion, that joy. One author said this, the great truth about Christianity is that no one needs stay the way he is. Isn't that beautiful? The great truth about Christianity is that no one needs stay the way he is. It only takes a step, a step to walk back towards Jesus. I was talking to a couple this last week, and uh, the boyfriend was kind of complaining a little bit that uh, his girlfriend was getting so strong spiritually he said, I'm afraid that she's going to be way stronger in her faith than I am. And do you know how compassionate I can be in those moments? He said, well, catch up to her. Start chasing her in the Lord. Start being that man, that godly man. Nobody's making you stand behind. Nobody's making you stay in her rearview mirror. Come on, move it, get going. It only takes a step to remember, to repent, to resume.
Jesus is waiting. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, there's something um, that is beautiful and scary about this passage. When we see that it's mail written to us, when we see it's a letter written to us, we, we see it in a whole different light. And Father, my prayer today is that every person in this room would say, you know what? I need to recover and remember and redeem that first love. Why have I fallen away? Well, the why isn't as important as this one fact that Jesus is just one prayer, one step away. So, Father, in this moment, I just want to give our people an opportunity to pray, to talk to you one-on-one. And so, Father, some of them would say, uh, forgive me for losing my first love. Others might say, well, Lord, I don't know that I even know you, but each one of us needs that opportunity to just simply be open before you. So, Lord, hear the prayers of your people. Father, may we be the church like the song that we sang earlier that sets the world on fire. May we have a fire in our souls, a relationship with Jesus that is so alive and so real that it's just as alive as it was the day that we said yes to you. May that be for me and for everyone in this church. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's children together said, amen, amen, thank you. Well, it is a privilege today to uh, dedicate one of our little ones to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to ask Ashley, and come on up here with Mason, and uh, also uh, Ashley's family and friends are going to come up here and stand with her, so if they would please come up here too, next to me. And uh, we first met Ashley, um, gee, what, a year ago, two years ago, how long ago? Three years ago. And we, we found her because of Shirley Noticing, this young lady right over here. And Shirley was in our church, and, she, and we needed someone to help us in the nursery. And uh, Shirley said, I have this granddaughter that would be awesome. And uh, of course she is. And then as a result of that, Ashley's become part of our church over these last three years, uh, not just as a worker, but as one of us, of our family. And she has this beautiful little boy, Mason, that you can see is... Um, well, he's, he's kind of a, what we call a church baby. That means that everybody grabs him and kind of takes, takes off with him. And kind of like Sabina, a star, you know, they just kind of disappear for a few minutes. And everybody loves these babies. And, and um, Mason is one of those church babies. Ashley has the extremely difficult uh, task of raising this child on her own. And so, but she's not alone. As you can see up here, her family. And as you can see, everyone in this church and everyone in the first service uh, she is part of us, and Mason is part of us, and so we rejoice with her in the dedication of Mason. So I want to begin by reading to you a wonderful passage in Scripture from Psalm 100. Know that the Lord is God. 
It is he that made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. I love that passage because of that last phrase, his faithfulness to all generations. Uh, Exodus 20 is one of those definitive passages that talks about the, the, the Ten Commandments. And in verses 4 and 5, he kind of takes, uh, he veers away a little bit. He's talking about idolatry and how wrong idolatry is. He kind of veers away the author for a moment, and he starts talking about generations, okay? And this is what he says. Sometimes when there's evil in the family, <laughs> that is passed on for the third and the fourth generations. And that's a scary thing for all of us, right? A generational sin from a father or a mother or a grandfather, you know, that can be passed on from generation. But then he says after that, but for those who love and serve the Lord, the blessings and the love and the mercy of God will be upon them for what? You know the word verse, a thousand generations. So you look at Shirley and mom and dad and Ashley and sister, and you look at this family and you say, okay, here represents three generations. Actually, four, counting Mason. Four generations of those who love and serve the Lord. Now, he's just getting wound up. Just in a minute, when I take a hold of him, he won't cry. He'll he watch, you know, I hope anyway. So listen to this word. Today, church, we come to rejoice with Ashley and her family in the gift of Mason. And to give thanks to God, the giver of life and the source of all blessing. Because Jesus invites the children to come to him we bring Mason to our Savior, praying for his blessing as a sign of the kingdom of God. Now, Ashley, as Mason's parent, you have offered him to the strong and tender providence of God and to the nurture of the church. We also, as members of this congregation, promise to share in your child's nurture and support your efforts in providing a loving and caring home for him. Our prayers be with you and for you in making your task both joyful and fruitful. Let us hear the gospel concerning Jesus and children. People were bringing little children to him to touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and put his hands on them and blessed them. And so now I'd like uh, both Ashley and all of her family to repeat after me, uh, after I've said this statement, we'll respond. Will you, as the family and parent of Mason, by God's help, dedicate yourselves to the Christian nurture of this boy and bring him up in the worship and teaching of the church that he may come to know Christ as Savior, be baptized, and follow him as Lord. If so, please say, we will. Thank you. And now I'd like to ask you, if you will, to stand. Now, will you, as members of this congregation, dedicate yourselves to be faithful to your calling as members of the body of Christ, so that this child and all other children among you may grow up in the knowledge and the love of Christ our Savior? If so, please say, we will. Thank you. Okay, now is the fun part. Come here, Mason. 
Hi, buddy. Look at all those people. They're all looking at you. Okay? Would you pray with me, please? Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I dedicate Mason James Slaughter to your care. I pray, Father, that this boy will grow up in a Christian home, that he'll grow up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord at Hope Covenant Church, that at a young age he will come to know you, and that as he grows up he will serve you as a mighty man of God. Bless him, bless Ashley, bless the entire family as they raise this child to love and to serve the Lord. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' precious name. And all of God's family said together, Amen. Amen. Now watch this. Behold what manner of the lo love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. <laughs> God bless you guys. You can be seated. You can be seated now. Oh, here you go, Ashley. So if, if you are a visitor, we would just remind you that